We're going to uh, do here what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn today or a Bible app, whatever, turn to Luke chapter 1, now coming to verse 26. We'll focus today primarily on verses 26 to 31, but I'll read right through 38 just to give us context. So if you found that, if you want to stand with me, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's word, let's uh, begin here at verse 26. Luke says this, in the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord, will give, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold... Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant or the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and we'll dive into this passage today, this next angelic announcement. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word now? Open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to receive what you want to speak to us today, what you want to reveal through your word. Uh, God, we believe that this word is not just some ancient document written thousands of years ago, but a living word. And by the spirit that inspired it to be written, I ask that you would come powerfully today and work in our hearts. Accomplish the purpose that you have in each one of us today through this word. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, whether it is Peter Parker, Clark Kent, Mary or Helen Parr, and Charles Xavier, any one of these, if you know comic book superheroes, you know that almost every single one of them has a alter ego, a secret identity that allows them to live and operate in normal society without being exposed. They, they need this to, to kind of hide the, uh, who they truly are, right? And, and it makes sense that they would have this. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, there's a massive amount of pressure on superheroes. I mean, they're constantly on all the time, having to save the world from the next Villains seeking to threaten the world's existence. And they probably need the, this secret identity just to avoid the crowds, right? The, the, as well as the critiques that come as a result of the celebrity that results from being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound or, or whatever it is. Being a superhero requires superhuman effort. 
superhuman focus, time, all these things, and therefore the ability to disguise oneself, to hide in plain sight so you can enjoy at least moments of normal life. It's essential. So we are continuing this Advent teaching series we began last Sunday entitled Beholds, looking at a number of these different angelic announcements recorded for us in Luke's gospel talking about what they reveal about just who this baby whose birth we're still celebrating 2,000 years later is. Last week we looked at the angelic announcement to an elderly priest named Zechariah, that he and his wife in their old age were finally going to have a son, and what that announcement revealed about Jesus was that he was coming. It told us that Jesus was now coming because the son that was going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth was John the Baptist. This one who would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, behold, and and preparing the way of the Lord and announcing his coming. This week, and actually over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking now at this next angelic announcement. Comes to a young engaged girl in Nazareth named Mary, that she too will have a son. But whereas Zechariah's son would be the forerunner announcing the Messiah's coming, Mary's son, Jesus, will be that coming Messiah. And what this angelic announcement reveals about this Messiah, about Jesus, is actually three things. It reveals that he will be human, that he will be divine, and that he will be a king. Those three things. We're going to look at the first of those three revelations. That's why we're going to contain our look really just to verse 26 to 31 today. But this idea of Jesus that he would be human is actually an incredibly important aspect of who Jesus was and is and, incidentally, why I began this message talking about superheroes and secret identities. Because here's the thing, uh, like I just finished saying, being fully human Fully man is an incredibly important aspect of who Jesus is. And and you know what? For many people, that's actually not a a hard thing to imagine at all because in their minds, uh, a human first century teacher, a moral teacher from the first century, that's all Jesus ever was. But for those of us who believe that Jesus was much more than that, that he was God's son, that he was Emmanuel, which means God with us, They can find it incredibly hard, much more harder, to accept that Jesus was anything but divine. So yeah, sure, Jesus would have have looked human as he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Uh, He would have looked like that, but of course he had to. He had to look like that, otherwise he never would have fit in, right? He never would have been able to go around and teach if he looked like who he truly was. And so while he might have looked that way, it was not that Jesus was actually human, No, 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 Jesus was, this was basically Jesus' disguise, his his secret identity to keep his true identity, his divine identity from being exposed. We'll talk about why people believe that and, and, and why it is as well that Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man as we go here, but, but here's the simple truth that I, I hope you'll take away if nothing else from this today. If Jesus, if his human body was nothing more than a disguise, then nothing of what Jesus came to accomplish was actually accomplished. That's the strange reality of this. If Jesus' human body is just a disguise, masking, disguising who he truly is, 
then nothing of what Jesus came to accomplish was actually accomplished. And in order to help you see why that is and, and hopefully grasp some of the real beautiful significance of Jesus' true, full humanity, I want to look at this next angelic announcement today in just three ways. We'll, we'll talk about the reality of Jesus' humanity, the humility of Jesus' humanity, and then finally, the purpose of Jesus' humanity. Okay, The reality, the humility, and the purpose of Jesus' humanity. So if you've closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to that passage? Luke 1, 26. Follow along with me here as we continue this Advent series looking at these incredible angelic announcements, showing all that they reveal about Jesus and considering what they meant to those first receivers of the announcements and all that they still mean to us today. Okay, so let's look first of all at the reality of Jesus' humanity. The reality of Jesus' humanity. And I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this point, but again, given the importance of Jesus' humanity to being able to accomplish the purpose for which he came, I think it's important that we establish this point before just moving on. And you know what, to be fair, I think I can, I can honestly understand why someone would have such a hard time accepting Jesus' humanity. I mean, there's so much about his life. If you read about his life in the Gospels, there's so much that points to his divinity, right? I mean, he's, he's doing these incredible miracles. He's walking on the water. He's healing people. He's knowing people's thoughts. Like, clearly, this guy is, is divine. And if you notice, every time somebody figures out that Jesus is the Messiah, what does he tell them? Don't, don't tell anybody who I am. That's exactly what somebody who's hiding their identity would say. So, so clearly, I mean, it makes good sense why people would believe this. And honestly, uh, I think this struggle to accept Jesus' humanity really just comes out of a good place, actually. It comes out of a place of desiring to honor Jesus' divinity, honor the fact that he truly was Emmanuel, God with us. And, and so, like, doesn't suggesting that Jesus was just human in any way, doesn't that diminish him? And the fact is, you know what, this is actually not a new idea, as early as the third century, there was a developing belief, later condemned as heresy in 325 AD, called docetism, which, which believed just this very same thing, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He, he looked like a human, but was not in any substantive way human. The first problem with that idea, uh, however, and my guess is the very first person who'd want to beg to differ with you, if you held that view, is Mary. Um, if you... See, they're clearly included in the angelic announcement. Look at verse 31 there. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Okay, so I know it's probably more of a, an argument from science and logic than from Scripture per se, but you know what? I think Mary would have pretty strong words for anyone who tried to say, you know what, that eight-pound baby you pushed out and then had to burp, feed, change, spend endless nights walking the floor with, that was just an illusion. That wasn't a real baby. She'd be like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that happened. Pretty sure there was a real baby, yeah, uh, uh, throughout that whole time. So, so that's the first problem. And, and, you know, along with that, if Jesus is only divine and not in any way human, what would even be the point of that? What would be the point of nine months of gestation and 30 years of, of just working under his adoptive father as a carpenter? What would be the point of that? I mean, is Jesus like... Natasha Romanov and Black Widow, he's just sort of like trying to perfect the illusion to everyone that I'm really part of a family. See, look, like, like it just seems 
superfluous, and, and not to mention it's time-wasting. According to Jesus' mission, he could have all that time to accomplish his mission instead of just you know, living in obscurity nowhere. If it's just an act, what would be the point? Second problem, again, if you've read the gospel accounts or all the places where you see Jesus doing stuff like being hungry, being tired and exhausted, uh, overwhelmed with sorrow, all like just really like ordinary human sounding stuff, which again, yeah, Jesus could have been faking, but why? Like what would be the point? Like telling his disciples, I'm hungry, let's go into town and get eating, but then just, you know, winking at the camera like I'm not really hungry. What, What would be the point of that? Finally, I think the most compelling problem with the idea that Jesus wasn't truly human comes from John's Gospel, which we read sections from here this morning, where after describing Jesus in his divinity in just staggering terms, the one, this, this word who was with God, who was God, the one through whom everything in the universe was created, John then goes on to conclusively add, John 1.14, this word he just described in all these Divine ways became flesh and dwelt among us. What do you do with that if Jesus hasn't truly become flesh? So again, I I, I respect, I feel like I really get where people are coming from when they struggle to accept the reality of Jesus' humanity and try to reconcile that with his divinity. And I get it, but, but as I hope you'll see more clearly as we go along this morning, more than just the biblical witness alone that Jesus was very truly and actually human, hope you'll see that rather than diminishing Jesus in any way, the reality of Jesus' humanity only seeks to exalt him all the more highly. Okay, so that's the reality of Jesus' humanity. Next thing I want to show you is the humility of Jesus' humanity. The humility it must have taken in order to take on humanity. And where you see that humility is both in Jesus coming to be born as a human at all, as well as the circumstances into which he's born. Thinking again, first of all, about the circumstances into which Jesus was born. What would you imagine? What would be a fitting welcome, a fitting celebration, if you knew that God was coming in human form to visit? What what, what do you think would be a fitting set up in order to do that? I mean, in the first century context, maybe that's like kingly palaces, extravagant banquets. Maybe you're putting together the same kind of entourage that the genie put together for Aladdin when he was presenting him as Prince Ali. You know, you got camels and llamas and all kinds of things. It's got to be a big celebration, right? Maybe in today's context, we're thinking of like the extravagance of Danton Abbey or, or the kind of opulence you see in movies like Crazy Rich Asians. Like, that's what you'd expect. That's what would be fitting for this visitation, right? And yet look again at the circumstances Jesus comes into. Verse 26 and 27 here. Jesus is born into this nowhere town, Nazareth. History tells us this town is like of a size of 500 people max. Okay, so that's like one traffic light and no cell service. This is a small nowhere place. And born to nobody, a nobody family with parents that aren't even married yet. So, which means not only is Jesus born into poverty, obsolescence, little to no educational opportunities, in this cultural time period anyway, he's also born into social disgrace. Like what, what kind of humility does it take to do this? 
to take on this, like, like to, to have all the power, position, glory, and, and riches of heaven, and then read the job description that says you need to walk away from all that and move in here and say, yeah, yes, absolutely, let's do it. What kind of humility does it take to do that? And then thinking about Jesus becoming human to begin with. When, when you go back again to that angel announcement in verse 31 about Mary conceiving and bearing a son, if you think about it, the, the other person who's intimately involved in that equation is the son, right? Jesus. He's the other kind of really important part in that. And without, I'm not trying to take away a single thing from, from Mary, from the incredible effort, the incredible excitement, and all these things of being pregnant, giving birth to a son, like, like props to her, absolutely. But think about Think about the boundless immensity of that same word that we just talked about there in John's gospel. The one who was with God, who was God, the one through whom everything was made, cramming himself into becoming a zygote, which is a fertilized egg in case you forgot grade four biology. I mean, like, in an infinitely smaller way, if you can imagine this, it's, it's literally like the same thing as all the DNA required to grow one of those giant redwood trees in California, which you can like actually drive your car through, all compacted into the size of a, a seed, the size of a tomato seed. That's, that's literally what we see going on here in an infinitely greater way in Jesus coming. What kind of humility does it take to do that? Like to, to not just... To read the job description that says you need to walk away from, again, glory, majesty, riches, space, and say not only do you need to move in here, Nazareth, you need to move in here, a uterus, and still be like, yes, yeah, I'll do it. Incredible humility. In Philippians 2, the, the passage we read in this passage this morning, Paul describes Jesus' humanity as the epitome of humility, the highest example of what humility likes when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this, this humble mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. And although, yeah, of course, they didn't have the same tools in Jesus' day to flex in front and be all, all extra in front of everyone else that we do today with social media, internet, and all these things, the reality is the same attitude absolutely existed in Jesus' day. This idea that you want to be great, if you want to be somebody in the world, you need to have the, the biggest house, the, the nicest ride, the, the nicest clothes, most successful kids, all these things, and you need to make sure everyone else sees that you have those things. That's how you become great. That, that's how you become somebody in this world. But it's as if Jesus knew that just the opposite was true. That true greatness lies not in trying to step over everybody else in order to try to prove that you're not nobody, but in actually surrendering greatness and becoming nothing. That's actually where true greatness lies, to become nothing. 
Derobach uh, says it this way, the great God of heaven sent the gift of salvation to humanity in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. Took off all the blame and came in this package of simplicity. And when you think about, just, just think about the obscurity of the circumstances of Jesus coming, the complete missability of the whole story of Christmas to begin with. It could have, we could have been never even hear about this. And yet, because it just sounds stupid, born in the middle of nowhere, out in a barn somewhere, announced to some shepherds, like it just seems foolish. It seems like the most poorly planned event ever. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later, still talking about this birth, still celebrating this baby. This one who is the greatest one of all, who became great not by telling everyone how great he was, by actually giving up greatness and becoming nothing. That's what made Jesus truly great. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if that sneaking suspicion that we all have throughout the day and especially at night in those moments just before bed when we're kind of reflecting on the day, and all that we've invested in in the day, that maybe so much of the effort that I'm putting into every day, just trying to prove to the world that I'm not nothing, isn't actually moving me towards greatness at all. I'm not actually moving any closer to it. But really, it's just like a revolving door that every day I come back to and have to start again. Here's a new day where I gotta prove to the world I'm not nothing. Here's a new day. And it makes me wonder if maybe Jesus' humble path to greatness isn't actually the true path to greatness. The one that we've all been longing to find. That maybe the path to achieving even some measure of greatness in this life isn't found by trying to be greater at all. But in laying down whatever little greatness I have in the service of others. I mean, Jesus had the most greatness of all to surrender and lay down, right? Which is why when he laid down his greatness and his majesty, even to the point of death on a cross, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2 that he is exalted then. He's given the name that's above every name because he surrendered the most. Maybe in an infinitely smaller way, the very same humble path of surrendering greatness for others is what will bring true greatness to us as well today. Not, not greatness as the world defines it, but as the creator of the world defines it. This path of humility is the true path to greatness. And, and humility, as C.S. Lewis helpfully put it and defined it for us, humility not being about thinking less of yourself or even thinking more highly of others, but simply about thinking about yourself less. Okay, we've looked at the reality of Jesus' humanity and now talked about the humility required for him to do that, to truly take on humanity. The last thing I want to look at together with you in closing is the purpose of Jesus' humanity. Why, why would he do this? Why, why did he need to do this? If this is really true about who he was, why did he need to do it? It's perhaps the most important question of all for us to answer. I've been saying throughout, Jesus' humanity is central to him being able to accomplish the purpose for which he came. So what was that purpose? Why did he need to become human in order to do it? Well, the first answer comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. 
And incidentally, it comes in the context of him teaching his disciples about humility and true greatness. His disciples are having this big argument with each other about who is the greatest, who is going to sit on the seats of honor when Jesus comes into his power and sits on his throne. And Jesus responds to them this way. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all. Here we come. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life is the first purpose of why Jesus came, which I know is a huge bucket of water on the Christmas fire. It, it, it seems to like dampen the Christmas party here, but the reality is the first reason Jesus needed to be fully, truly human was so that he could die. Divinity itself cannot die, and therefore Jesus takes on humanity for the express purpose of laying it down on a Roman cross in order to bear the sins of the world. As the author of Hebrews places the the words of Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus regarding his debt-canceling surrender of his life on the cross, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, he says, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So that's the first reason Jesus had to be human in order to die. But that's not the only reason. The other purpose for Jesus' humanity, along with coming to die, he took on humanity in order to experience the fullness of life firsthand, in order to experience all the highs, but especially all the lows, all the difficulties, the struggles, the hardships himself. Why? Well, as the author of Hebrews elsewhere says, speaking of Jesus' priestly intercession for us now in heaven, in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of our own struggles, he says this, therefore he, this is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Which, by the way, to be clear, Jesus experienced all those things in his humanity, not as a tourist, not just coming down to kind of be like, I wonder what that feels like, or or like he couldn't figure it out on his own. He did that in order that we could feel confident coming to him in the midst of our own trials and temptations, knowing that he'll be merciful with us because he knows how hard it is. He knows what it feels like to struggle in those ways. Because in his humanity, he truly struggled just as we do. Last purpose of Jesus' humanity, and this is the most exciting and I think encouraging of, of all. He came as human in order to give us a hopeful picture of our future for all who trust in him. Because here's the thing not only did Jesus come to die, he also came to win the victory over death for all time. Not only did he come to die, but to have victory. For as Jesus said himself regarding his death, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And in his physical 
bodily resurrection from the dead, not spiritual, not metaphorical, his physical resurrection from the dead. Jesus wins that victory, but hear me, not only for himself, but for you and for me and for everyone who puts their faith in his name. As Jesus said to Martha, John 11, moments before he physically raises her brother from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see it? So, I mean, we've said here that the reality of Jesus' humanity, we've seen it really is a real thing. We've seen the humility of Jesus and being willing to surrender greatness in order to take on human flesh. But this, what we've just looked at here, this is the purpose for Jesus' humanity, why he needed to become human to begin with, namely to die, to experience trials and temptations of life just as we do firsthand, and to give us a hopeful picture of our future. I hope you can see, man, this is, this is no alter ego for Jesus, no secret identity that he just put on but wasn't truly wearing. This, this is who he truly was, masking not his true identity on the one hand. No, Jesus is both. His humanity, being born of a woman, is as much real as his being the Son of God. It's both. It's an essential reality of who he also must be, his humanity, in order to accomplish these purposes. Why? Well, because if Jesus doesn't truly die, he only appears to die, he only seems to die, then he hasn't truly paid the penalty for any of our sins. And you and I must give an account for them ourselves. If Jesus doesn't truly experience all the joys and hardships of life, you'll never trust him to walk with you through your own. And if Jesus didn't truly bodily rise from the grave, then one day when your life comes to an end, neither will you. I get it, I know it's almost impossible for our minds to reconcile this fact that Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. Believe me, I am not here today to explain to you how he did that. Only just to present to you the biblical account and evidence that he did. As this word that, that was with God and was God laid down greatness and came to be born in these humble circumstances in a nowhere town to nobody parents. But I hope you can see now exactly why Jesus had to be both, why he had to come as both fully man and fully God, and why being fully man doesn't take away anything from Jesus' divinity, from his being truly God. It doesn't diminish him in any way. I'm trying to wrap our heads around how that could be. I love this story from Brian Chapel, and I'll close with this. There was uh, an African tribe dependent on water that was drawn from a well. But this well was different than the kind of well where you take a bucket and water and draw up the water. This was a well that was much deeper and you needed to physically climb down into in order to draw water. You'd bring water skins down, fill them up, and then hike back up through this narrow channel to get to the top. And that's how they drew water. One day, as the story goes, a man fell while trying to climb back up and he broke his leg laying at the bottom of the well, and try as they might, no one had the strength in order to rescue him, to carry him out, except for the chief of the village. And so the chief came and arrived at the well, and before he went down into the well, he stripped off all his royal robes and royal headdress. He laid them aside, 
so that he could climb down into this well in order to rescue the fallen man. And the question the chapel asks by way of application is this. When the chief took off his royal robes and became a servant to that man trapped in the well, was he any less the king at the bottom of that well not wearing those robes than he was at the top when he was still wearing them? Taking off the robes was simply a, a, a measure of his greatness in order to go down and rescue this man, which no one else could. Jesus' humanity, it was essential for accomplishing the purpose for which he came. But in humbly laying down his greatness and taking on the form of a servant himself, I hope you see not a thing was lost from Jesus' humanity, humanity and his divinity as he took off these royal robes in order to become human and accomplish these purposes for which he came. Nor was he diminished in any way. If anything, his, his greatness was only shown all the more. Thanks be to God for this incredible, indescribable gift that we have in him. Amen.